You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to this episode of The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kyle Ann Hunter, a professor at the United States Air Force Academy. It's not often we get folks from the Air Force Academy in our podcast, so we're pretty excited to have Kai on here today. Kai, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So Kai, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. So as uh, you mentioned, I am Kai Hunter. I am currently a professor of military and strategic studies and the director of the Strategy and Warfare Center at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Don't hold it against me that we're at the the Air Force Academy here. Um, We only hate you on football days. So otherwise, we're still one team, one fight. Uh, But prior to that, I, I was a Cobra pilot in the Marine Corps, which is, I know a lot of what we'll be talking about today and uh, how I, I got to know Tim pretty well during our, our times when we were both stationed out in North Carolina. In addition, I also served uh, in the Office of Legislative Affairs for the Marine Corps and the House of Representatives for, for three years. I then went on and I chaired the Employment and Integration Subcommittee for DACOITS, which is the Secretary of Defense's Advisory Committee for Women in the Services as well as I'm currently chairing the climate and culture line of effort for the President's Independent Review Commission on Military Sexual Assault. So my range is, is super wide here in terms of both my experience as well as what I, I research on this. So we've got uh, attack, uh, you know, attack pilot stuff, we've got uh, some of my, my DNI efforts, sexual assault prevention efforts. So a lot of it here and super excited to, to talk to you. Kai, I think you're living proof that not all Marines eat crayons and can't read or write. What, someday. Someday, yeah. What put you into the Marine Corps in the first place? So I, I think I took a, an interesting path to the Marine Corps. This wasn't a lifelong dream. I didn't start college thinking I would go to the, the, the Marine Corps. Um, didn't even necessarily have a lifelong dream of flying. Um, I, I went to Georgetown for my undergrad. And I thought I was going to go be a diplomat. I was in school, foreign service. Life was going to be all great. Um, Finding jobs is not always easy, though, coming out of this. And I was like, you know, all the jobs out here are really boring. I actually had an internship that was going to turn into a job at a telecom, and it was going to be all great. And I was like, this is super boring. You know what's not boring? I bet the Marine Corps isn't boring. 
and uh, got sold very well that it was not. Um, and and I I sometimes tell people I got drunk and woke up at OCS, but that probably isn't the <laughs> the best way to put it either. Um, you know, really looking for looking for a challenge got you know got convinced that this was the right one to do, and I have not regretted it a day since. You sign up for the Marine Corps, you wind up at OCS, you're there on a flight contract, you go to the basic school. What when what time frame is this? So this is the uh, early early two thousands, um, early early two thousands here, and it was a weird weird spot. You know, nine eleven has happened. We were you know at war at the at the time. Still, I think a lot of confusion around what was going on in Iraq, which is a lot what we'll what we'll talk about. Um, thinking that this was going to be a super quick in and out, one and done, you know, like, oh, look, we invaded, we took over, we're going to be gone, thinking it was going to be a redo of, of Desert Storm. I think there was a, you know, a sense sort of in the Marine Corps writ large that if you weren't part of the big first push, you lost out on your ability to get to go do all of our fun Marine Corps stuff that that we had um, out there. But, you know, on the other hand, which was nice, is like, it was a time when the country was like super supportive of all of us too <laughs> out there. So yeah, went to the basic school on a flight contract, and then went down to Pensacola for flight school. Coming out of that, um, I had no idea what a Cobra was when I went to the basic school or even flight school. It was not again. I don't come from a military background. Don't didn't know much about it. I knew I wanted to fly helicopters because it seemed like the most marine thing I could do on a on a flight contract. Oh, did I think even how I got on a flight contract, though, is even a, a better story. Now that I know how the recruiting works, I understand the, the business there, but was was in and had decided and was doing my my uh, paperwork. And one of the gunnies in there who was working, working through with me was like, well, we have flight contracts and ground contracts. If you take a ground contract, like you're going to have to be like a secretary or something. But if you take a flight contract, you can fly whatever you want. And so now I know that they actually just really needed flight contracts when, when I was there and we're going to use their, uh, their salesmanship to do it. But I believed them that that was what was going to happen because I didn't know any better. So I uh, learned, learned some of those good recruiting tricks later on when I got a little older in, uh, in all, of, all of this. But so, so, yeah, so went to Pensacola for flight school. Um, it was a blast. It just, you know, it basically is Top Gun. That's what, that's what we do. We've got to live up to our good Naval Aviator uh, name and, and be in the Navy. Ended up uh, in, in helicopters, which is what I knew I wanted to do. And then ended up with Cobras and really didn't know what to expect. Like it hadn't, like, I don't think it had really crossed my mind what the mission was, what we were doing, who we were doing it with until we got you know, till we really, till I really got into it. Like it, it had, I hadn't, you know, you're so immersed in training at the time that you're not really thinking operationally. And I know a lot of the, the West Point cadets out there that are listening will probably feel a lot of this too, that you're so dug in and immersed to what you are actually doing that you forget that you have a real job, you know, that you're getting ready to do. So I think if, if there's one thing from this sort of early on time period I have, is to remember as you're as you're going through your studies, as you're getting very frustrated with everything in life. You know, remember that you're actually going out and getting ready to do a job. Uh, so, all right. So, you, you've talked about the missions and the roles of the Cobra. What are they for our listeners that aren't familiar with Marine Corps aviation? 
Yeah, so the, the Cobra is the attack helicopter. Our primary role is close air support. So I think a big difference between the Apaches and the Cobras, not in terms of like the technical things that they do, they have very, very similar technical capabilities, but more in terms of how they are employed. The Cobras are seen as essentially an organic weapon system of our infantry battalions. So they are close air support for our infantry troops rather than a separate sort of maneuver mission element that's that's out there. So close air support, escort support, you know, medevac escorts, basically anytime you need a helicopter to go in and shoot things, we're the people you you want. And we we work very closely with you know, with the infantry all the time. Uh, looking back, it really did set a path for me where I am because at the time I was there, this is the closest thing that a woman could have done to the infantry without being in the infantry. Other than, you know, there's some logistics women who got in many more firefights just because of the nature of what was going on. But in terms of really being a organic weapon system as part of the main effort, Cobras, Cobras were the thing. So after you graduate from the Cobra pipeline, you get sent to your first squadron. How long are you training in the United States before your first deployment? Oh, I was only there for like a month. <laughs> there, here you go. We're, we're heading out. Um, you know, at, at the time, the op tempo was super fast. Uh, it, it was working in, you know, the, the average rotation for our squadron um, was about you know, seven to 10 months deployed, three to six months home. And home was often also had you know, desert talent type operations that we'd, we'd go out for training exercises, going and support weapons and tactics school training. So uh, there weren't by, well, let's say by about 2008, nine, they had actually stood up an additional Cobra Huey squadron, which lessened some of the burden, but, you know, it took time for the pipeline. You know, it was the most in demand aircraft out there. And so, and we it had, it had been a small force as it, as it was, there were only four squadrons at the time supporting the entire Marine Corps, which isn't a lot, especially when we were fighting in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And and then also had obligations on the, the Muse, the Marine Expeditionary Units at the same time. So op tempo was just insane when uh, when we got there. So I mean, that's, I think another thing is when you get ready to get out to your operational units, you're not going to have a lot of time to train before things get ready. Sounds very familiar to a lot of the other folks we've talked to and some of our experiences here as well. So the story you're going to tell us today happens in 2007. It's before the surge, but, you know, kind of what, is this your first deployment? What, what's going on in your world? This, this is my, my second Iraq deployment that's, that's there. Um, and we had moved from being very concentrated, I think, both as a Marine Corps as well as, you know, as, as us in the, you know, Fallujah, Ramadi area. There had been a lot of fighting there from sort of like 05 to late 06. Um, and a lot of what we were doing was out of Elisa Aden El Qaim at the time. And we really started to push towards Syria to, to head out towards the, the northwest part of Iraq. And in a lot of ways, this is a very Marine thing to do. You know, as uh, it wasn't, you know, storming beachheads and creating decision space for the joint force, but we had gotten, you know, Al-Assad was a big base by this point. You know, I think they even had a pizza hut 
by the time that <laughs> was was there and like green beans coffee you know so so they had been a, they were they were established it was there the army air force had a, had a big presence and so in a lot of ways if we think about this from sort of a high joint force level like it was just time for the marines to move to the next place to to take it over so as we started to head you know, from if you think about the country of Iraq, sort of like from where Baghdad is up towards towards Syria, um, Korean village for any of you who were there at the time know the place that's that's heading out that way. It it was a sort of sweep almost to say, all right, our insurgents going over the border into Syria to hide. Like that was a lot of what we were thinking at the time. You know, was are our insurgents coming from over there? Um, are they are the weapons funneling in through through Syria? to to get to get in here you know thinking that all right we're, we've got to move out of the exact cities at at this time and actually start getting into some of the less less populated part of the country to see what's going on prior to the move out to kv what was your average cycle like so prior to that we we would essentially we were we were split on 12 hour alerts so usually 7 to 7 so 7 a.m to 7 p.m or 7 p.m to 7 a.m and our typical day cycles would be um, there would typically be some pre-planned escort stuff that we had to do. So a lot of we did Overwatch for convoy escorts, essentially knowing that um, you know the the way terrain in Iraq was and how the wadis sort of engaged and allowed for uh, people, really people in trucks, to mask themselves from the roads to remotely detonate IEDs. You know, we, we would do a lot of the Overwatch escort and, and, you know, take out the technicals if they were hiding there to be able to ambush or set off IEDs for our, um, our convoys that were there. So that we, there was usually be one or two planned. I mean, that's a core mission set of ours is, is that armed escort. There would always be someone who was on medevac escort alert. I think, you know, as I'm sure everyone, this is when I got to fly with the army a lot. The army were most of the medevac birds, but I think as, as you all know, they can't be armed. You know, they, they aren't armed themselves, so we would escort them. And uh, for Medivacs, there was always a crew that was on, on alert for that. Then there was always a crew that was on close air support and troops in contact alert. And that would vary from day to day, how often a, a tick would actually occur for us to go out. And then there was a crew that tended to be on alert for pre-planned missions. Like we knew if it was going to be a, whether it was a raid of a house um, a planned operation to capture a high-value target. You, know, we we were assigned to one of the infantry battalions out there, and and sometimes down to the company level to be their support for for that mission. So that was it was much more kinetic. I think out out at that that time because it was in some of the the heights of what we thought of as the heights of the war. So you're getting a lot of combat flying, a lot of close air support. When you go out and launch a tick on a, on a troops in contact mission, what's what's going out with you? What's going out on your rails? What's going through your mind as a pilot? For for a tick, we would often, most often, actually fly as a Cobra Huey team at there. So a Cobra and a Huey together, because um, having the gunners in the Huey often provided us with, or not often, they did, it's just declarative, provided us with better situational awareness that we could just have as pilots that were there. They're able to to see things, have a different sort of situational awareness. We would go out with a 20 millimeter, you know, our, our 20 millimeter cannon was 
fully fully loaded. And then we'd have rocket pod, usually 2.75 inch rockets. We'd uh, have two rocket pods. And then given, for depending on the time of year and where we actually were, usually four missiles with us, two toes and two hellfires. Um, it's hot in Iraq and helicopters don't love to fly in the, in the heat. So uh, that, that missile loadout did often though depend on where we were and what we thought targets would actually be in terms of what sort of what sort of missiles to get out. You know, it, when you go out on a tick, it's a it's very different than even going out on like what would be a pre-planned sort of combat mission because you're going into the complete unknown. Like you don't you don't know all you know is that unexpectedly our ground troops received enemy contact. And so it's not expected. There's a lot of very quick decision making that has to go into it in terms of assessing the scene identifying friendlies and not friendlies right away. It is one of the things I think from a a Marine perspective that what we do and even our whole model of being part of the basic school is so important because we speak the same language. We know, you know, like as a Cobra pilot, having gone through the basic school, I know basic, like super rudimentary, I mean, nothing like an infantry officer would, but super rudimentary infantry tactics and what they are going to do and be able to expect you anticipate some of the things that they're going to want that they're going to do. So I, I think the first thing that goes through through my mind when I go out something like that is like, you know, it, as sad as it, it sounds, I, I hope it's not one of my friends who's dead. I think that's something that um, all of us who have been in these situations have that thought because we are close and it is a small core. And so there's this sense that, you know, I, I hope it's not somebody I know. And that sounds horrible and selfish, but it's always the first thing of like, who am I going to hear on the other, other end of the radio that's, that's the one in, in distress? So there's that, that side of it. Then the, I, I hope everything is working in terms of like sensors so that I can actually identify friends and foe and, and, and kill the bad guys and get authorization and clearance to do it. Because that was another, another issue in these, in ticks. It was sometimes hard to get authorization and clearance to to fire if we didn't have very good situational awareness as to what was going on at, at this point. And it's one of the, I think, the, the hardest things with counterinsurgencies in urban environments is that you don't always know who the good and the bad guy is. And how long would, would, would these tick missions last? We, we only have two hours worth of gas. So <laughs> we'd have to be, be back. Now, sometimes you did go out more than that, you'd come back, refuel, um, or rearm, and then go back out. The The insurgents learned pretty quickly that if Cobra showed up, it would be a bad day for them, or Cobra Huey team showed up, it would be a bad day for them, and they would scurry off and disengage very quickly. And so there were some sustained, you know, I think six six hours is some of the longest I, I was there for something, but it, it got to the point where, you know, they knew once we showed up, it was going to be a bad day. So they'd scurry off and reblend into the population again. At this time in Iraq, not a lot of counter-air threat or anti-air threat, or are you still concerned? What's yeah? By this point, we we weren't we weren't concerned. I think you know as we started to move towards Korean Village, there was a renewed concern about it. Like in and around the Fallujah, Ramadi, Hit, Haditha, you know Baghdad area. There wasn't much of a concern anymore. There had been a big enough U.S. air presence there for long enough that if they were going to shoot us down, they would have by now. And I know that sounds awful. And there were some some mishaps in this regard, but it wasn't a big one. But it became a big concern in our mind as we started to move back out towards Korean Village, you know, because we didn't know 
what we were going to be be up against, and that was a bit of a unexplored territory. Let's move you out to Korean Village. How long are you out there before the story you're going to tell today happens? few weeks i want to say like somewhere between three and six weeks you know close to the the month is march like long enough that we had gotten i'm gonna use the term comfortable and loose air quotes in terms of like we knew the area in regards to flight rules and how to get around and what sort of deconfliction we had with with other units but we still didn't know everything that there was around there at the time so yeah somewhere in the like yeah three to six week mark and are you supporting an infantry battalion a light armored recon battalion who are you out there with yeah we were out there with a with a light armored recon battalion who who was there there was a infantry infantry company that was um, at a smaller fob that was a few clicks away that we'd work for some, but we were we were directly there attached to and working with an LAR LAR battalion. For for our listeners who aren't aware of the Marine Corps' force structure, a light armored reconnaissance unit is a mechanized a mechanized infantry company whose job is to screen for the lane the the main attack and the main the main units. They're driving around in LEVs, light armored vehicles, which are without. Yeah, without being pejorative, kind of smaller strikers and significantly older because it's the Marine Corps. But they have this long-range patrolling mission and mentality, very similar to Cav Scouts in your in your mechanized world. So they're used to covering a lot of terrain, and it sounds like you're pretty comfortable working with these guys. Yeah, we, we developed an incredible working relationship. They were great to, to be out there with. I think some of it is this, I mean, Cav Scouts is probably the most similar idea in that they're used to being both very far forward and, you know, being responsible for big, big parts of areas, which I think, you know, for, for the listeners that, that weren't aware, you know, prior to this, really, when we had thought about sort of what area a individual unit controlled in Iraq, it was a few blocks. You know, we were looking at, you know, square blocks in Baghdad, Fallujah, Ramadi, Hit, Haditha, you know, that this was a, a, a very small actual geographic area. This was very different in terms of the fact that, you know, the, the LAR battalion out there was hundreds, if not thousands square miles that they're responsible for going forward, understanding what's out there, sort of laying laying and scoping the battlefield for follow-on units. You know, they, they really are the ones who go out and say, okay, this is the shape of the battlefield. You know, when you go and you give this, the orientation briefing that's there, they're the ones who know the orientation. They know, and, and I think what makes them unique in the Marine Corps is that you know, while they have a very specialized skill, they're also looking through the eyes of who might be coming later on too, as to what matters for them. So you've been working with LAR out on the border. Have you engaged or has this been kind of? No, this had been really quiet. And it was a big, a big difference where there weren't, there are were a few, you know, a few small villages, cities, um, lots of goat herders out in the, uh, in the areas. Like they would go and they actually spent a lot of time talking to the, the goat herders out of there. And for the first few weeks, we were like, this is kind of, you know, it almost felt like spring break in some ways. I know that sounds like pejorative, but it, it was a, like, it's it's sort of relaxing flying. We actually got to focus on some of our more syllabus-focused flying to move us forward because we were like, okay, we can plan missions with LAR around what sort of flights we need for upgrades, for different sorts of things. There's not a lot of, of activity 
going on out out here. It seems sort of quiet. I think going through a lot of our minds was like, why why did we even come out here? You know, what was the what was the purpose? There's nobody, you know, there's no fighting here. You can see again, seems we're like this is this was easy. I think the the only smaller engagements that we did have were around medevac issues where there had been and none of it was actually I think all that seriously meaningful. It was like, you know, people taking pot shots at us and, and none of the medevacs were even that awful, you know, because it was a you know, it was somebody came in and took a few pot shots at an infantry company that was there and like somebody got shot in the hand, which again, not to downplay it or diminish it, but it was just a very different sort of level that than we had been experiencing prior. So the intensity had, had drained off. Do you think that made you less alert or more alert as a pilot? I actually think it made me more alert as a, as a pilot. Some in the sense of you could actually relax during downtime. So like we were better rested as much as that seems like a bad thing to say. We were well rested and it's war, but it, it was like, we actually got to be well rested, which was important. And, and then I think on the, on the other side is that it was like eerily quiet until we were much more alert. Like it, it was that strange sense of like something is probably about to happen sometime because it's too quiet. So what happened? Yeah, so we were we were out, and LAR was doing one of their their normal sort of patrols. They would go out, and we'd we'd fly over them, and they they'd go and talk to people in villages. They'd go and talk to you know farmers, and it was it was it all been quiet, all been quiet the the entire time until one one night it was a a night patrol they do some of these at night, some of them during the day just to again keep sort of keep the population on their toes in a sense of like trying to be unpredictable um you know if you only do things at night, then people are going to go do the nefarious stuff during the day if you only do things at day, people will do the nefarious stuff at night, you know right so we had to stay stay unpredictable that way got into a a small, I mean, village doesn't even sound like the right term because it's like literally five houses that were that were in a in a spot, and we had been there before, and there had always come back this sense of like something not quite right is going on there, but we can't. There was no real evidence, and and I don't know how to say it other than like anytime anyone would go around there, like every spidey sense would go up and be like, there, this is not a great place like this is (laughs) something bad something bad is is going on here um and so finally one night when they went and and it's one of those things i think all of us looking back on events is like how much was happenstance how much was actually we had the right intel to action on it i don't i think it's a combination of a lot of things too of like continued good intel and also there's a little bit of luck and we we lar stumbled on a a huge weapons cache of um, RPGs, a lot of IED materials, explosive materials that were there that hadn't yet been built into um, IEDs, AK-47s, and thousands and thousands of rounds of ammo. I think the biggest part of it is like the smallest rounds of ammo. And this confirms of a lot of our suspicions that, you know, the insurgents were getting arms smuggled through Syria into Iraq and ha- and creating a network sort of along the way of, of bringing them down. But I think that the bigger thing for me that, that comes out of this event is that there, 
engagement started. You know, it was a weapons caches are often not not guarded. You know, like they tend to if they're going to put this this much stuff in one place, they're going to have somebody looking out for it, protecting it, trying to keep track of it. That was uh, that was there, and and so that that then had to completely change our calculus in what to do around an engagement. You know, like prior when there was a troops in contact or engagement, it had been the, the thought process was very much, okay, let me ID the bad guy, shoot the bad guy, save the good guy. I mean, that, that's reductivist, but it, that's very much what we were thinking. Here, I had, it was the first time I really remember myself meaningfully hesitating pulling the trigger because there was so much explosive material down there. And simultaneously, we had our LIR guys, you know, fighting off, the small arms fire, trying to unearth and bring out and do away with this this cache and watching them, you know, go in and, and literally dig up and unearth and then go into house and come back with more. Like I very consciously was like, I can't shoot a missile into anything here because I don't know what the secondary second, third, fourth order effects are going to be around what this is going to do to the you know, what the danger close range really is anymore because it's no longer just my blast pattern I have to worry about. This isn't something we had ever really, I, it, it sounds bad to say, this isn't something we'd ever really trained for, but it's it's not. You don't, like you you spend a lot of time very technically thinking about, okay, what's the, you know, what's the blast radius of these different weapon systems? You don't think about what's the blast radius if this now goes into a, box of 7.62 rounds that are that are there or goes into a, a box you know what what is the what's what is the frag patterns how are they going to change what do we need to to think about here so it was the time I I felt very helpless as close air support at the time and it was a really hard change um, it was the first time I felt so confused about what to do um, we ended up, you know, at, at the end making low passes and only using the gun on vehicles that we knew were out there because we knew what the effect of that was going to be. We had a sense that, like, we knew what was going to happen if we put 20 mil round into a Toyota engine. That's the thing that we had done enough times that we're like, we know what that's going to do. We know the effect it has on people. It ended up having the effect of you know, scattering the insurgent group. But I, I still, to this day, wonder if there's more we should have done more quickly to, to prevent injuries. Thankfully, there were no fatalities of casualties um, at that time. There were, there were injuries. Um, and you know, I, I still wonder if I should have done something different. I, I want to go back. So you're in, you're in a pair section. It's night. Mm-hmm. You, this is a pre-planned mission. You're flying on sensors. You're flying on nods. You know, kind of what? On nods, yeah, we're on we're on goggles um, for this. So, pre-planned mission. These things have become pretty standard. You know, we kind of like it almost scripted in in a lot of ways that that were there. And so, we had a real good relationship um, with uh, with the guys on the ground and what was going on. And I think that's that was one of the biggest things too is that we had worked so much together. We knew sort of what to expect. You're flying with a pilot you've flown with before extensively, very comfortable? Very comfortable with the other pilot. And I think that's what made a lot of this even more con- like confusing 
because we had flown so much together before. And it was almost like we knew we could expect each other. We knew what to do. We knew how to engage. And uh, that all of a sudden was like, oh, shit, what do we do? Oh, I don't even know if I can swear on this thing. But uh, <laughs> you can cut that if you have to. But it, it, was, it was a very hard, I think, engagement there. And so this LAR, it's, it's a company that's out on the ground? There, there wasn't a, there's only a platoon that was out on the ground at the time. Cause it was like expected to be short. That's we had gone down to just working with platoons at, at a time to be able to cover more ground, keep folks out longer, longer periods at a time. So you've got what, four, maybe five LAVs out there, your two ship section. And that was it. And probably about, uh, 50 bad guys that were around. Um, and we were far, I mean, we were a good, I mean, we were a good half hour, hour flight from KV, which is not close. I mean, like it doesn't seem that long when you're like, Oh, it's a half an hour. I'm like, but it's actually longer than I think people, uh, a half hour is when you think about being able to call and get for backup. I mean, you're looking at like an hour to get someone out there often. So, and you've burned a quarter of your fuel roughly to get out there. Right. Right. And so that's what really led to this decision of if we can go into making packs and take out the trucks, it's a definitive action that we can do in the limited time that we have before we've got to leave. LAR goes into the village and do these trucks just appear out of the desert? Do they start taking fire from within the village? Like what was your indication that something had gone wrong? So first was the amount of trucks in the village. Like that was one of our first things that, that we, we were used to seeing technical trucks all over the desert driving around. Um, they didn't tend to hang out in villages very not, very often. So as soon, as soon as we saw them in the village, we knew that something was wrong. And we didn't know what was wrong though at the time. So they started taking fire from within the village, within one of the houses that was, that was there, that was actually adjacent to the house that had the cash in it. That was that was there, and our initial reaction was to go and take out the building where the fire was coming from. But they waved us off from that right away with just because of the size of the caches they were finding. When you say the trucks, did you see the trucks? Did LAR report them? We saw we saw the trucks from from overhead. They they reported them as well. We, we had a conversation around how it wasn't right for them to be there, but we weren't quite sure what was going to go, what was happening. There was conversation about whether or not they should actually proceed and go in and try to knock on doors and see what was going on in the village. Determined that because of the limited time on station we had, it was best if they did because we were there and it was better to do it while we were there than if we weren't. The gunfights happen. More trucks come in or trucks start trying to leave? What's the... Um, so they start trying to leave. There there was very much, again, I think there was a, you know, we, we like to talk about putting the enemies on the horns of the dilemma in, uh, in the Marine Corps. It's one of our favorite phrase, phrases. And I think this, this shows an interesting horns of a dilemma for both sides that existed. They knew that if they brought more trucks in, they would attract more overhead air support, all of that, you know, that was a, like, they knew that that was going to be a problem. 
um, while we were at the Horns of a Dilemma because we didn't know how kinetic we could actually get without unintentionally hurting, and not just us, but you know the civilians that are there too. You know that this this is a real village. We didn't know who else was in the house with these guys who were taking pot shots at them either, which is a big question of not wanting to also destroy things because is the frag pattern going to hurt the civilians around? And that would like you want to talk about a nightmare. Like that would be even 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 worse. And so it was a, in many senses, like the dual horns of a dilemma that we that we had. So they start taking contact. Trucks start leaving. What are you doing in the air on the radio with the sensors? You know, are you are you calling back to KV going, hey, put up another section? Yeah. So we we were calling back to have another section come out. We we're trying to get another LAR. We needed more boots on the ground too at the time. So diverting, we were calling first to divert a another LAR platoon that was near Ishbai to come provide additional on-ground support because that that became very clear that first they have better situational awareness in terms of how extensive caches are, what sort of a firefight they're going to be in. Um, And then also to scramble, we particularly wanted Hueys at the time because uh, of the, you know, the, the gunner's guns that were there was deemed a better asset given the situation than bringing a bunch of missiles to the fight. You know, it would be better for us to have more small arms fire at the fight than a lot more missiles. So we were, we were scrambling them to, to come out. We did get relieved. So we went back to base when a, a section of Hueys came out, things were starting to, to quiet down quite a bit by that point. It was either a scramble guys trying to get out. A few did before vehicles had gotten disabled. Um, and that always, that was one of the biggest gray areas around like rules of engagement is if we could chase them away and shoot them. Um, or if once they fled, we, you know, we were sort of stuck where we, uh, where we were. Um, so, so that's, so we went back, things started to slow down. Um, a lot of guys just sort of retreated again, retreated into the, into the village, this little five. And then there's only so much, so much you can do. And, um, LAR guys hung out there for a while at night, but I think there also comes a point of at what point again, with rules of engagement, do you have to just break contact and, and leave? And I don't know the full, the full thoughts of theirs. So you've gone back to base, LAR's departed. What's the change? Is there a change? So, yeah, so we, we changed a lot what we started to do tactically. We started to go out in four ships rather than two ships, um, making sure we always had a at least two Hueys with us. Again, seeing this idea of um, the need for more small arms that were there. Uh, LAR increased their sizes of things we were doing. We actually then brought out a um, EOD company as well. So, you know, ordnance disposal guys, because we, this, this ended up being the first of many once we started to identify what these, these patterns looked like. So it, it taught us a lot about what to look for in terms of, you know, prior to this, there had been a lot of these vehicles roaming around the desert in and near this village, but never actually entering it. Um, so again, a lot of, a lot of pattern development as to, okay, they must be sort of scoping out where they are. They're trying to get our patterns. We had to become even less predictable than, uh, than we had before it. We increased our size 
pivoted to having a lot more small arms with our, our close air support. And um, it really increased the on the ground footprint and presence. And I think some we found a lot more. There was also a lot of deterrence that occurred. Yeah, I think we, we, we did get some good deterrence there. How'd you deal with that sense of uncertainty? You know, it, I think in a lot of ways it heightened our sense of needing to train, train like we fight even more. I think we talk about that idea a lot. And I think it, it really changed how we started training when we got back in the fact that we needed a lot more uncertainty in our training, you know, that, that we couldn't train as sort of scripted and pre-planned as we had before. And on a personal level, did it change you as a, how did you change after that? You know, it, it, it lost a big part of my cocky streak, I think, that was there. I think that uh, there comes a point sort of, and whether it's within one deployment, within a crew cycle, whatever, and you're like, oh, yeah, I got this, right? I know what's going on. I got this. And uh, the, the doubt that I had, the confusion, the uncertainty was the first time I was like, oh, no, I don't got this. I don't necessarily know what's happening. And I think it, it was a huge lesson in humility for me. Kai, I want to thank you for being on this episode of The Spear. Thank you so much, and I hope to join you again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.